The Courage to Lead, episode 115. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. Um, I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Dr. Chris Stout. Dr. Chris Stout is a clinical psychologist and international humanitarian with a diverse background in various domains. He's the founding director of the Center for Global Initiatives, executive producer and host of the popular Living a Life in Full podcast. He served as a, a full professor in the Department of Psychiatry, fellow in public health, and advisor to the Center for Global Health in the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois. Dr. Stout has lectured across the nation and internationally in over 20 countries. He was noted as being one of the most frequently cited psychologists in the scientific literature. He is a fellow in the American Psychological Association, which has dubbed him International Psychology's rock star. He is a best-selling author, having published 38 books, his works have been translated into eight languages. He's a recipient of four humanitarian awards, four additional honorary doctorates. He's been a guest on CNBC, CNN, NBC, PBS, NPR, and Oprah. And now he's here with me. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. No, this is awesome. Man, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I just just reading this, I'm tired. I don't know how you how you do this. You've, you've come, and that's only a portion of the, the background. That's only a portion of the resume. There's so much that you've done and accomplished and well done. Well, thanks. Thanks. It just uh, kind of adds up over the decades, you know. It, I guess it does. <laughs> but, uh, but you're also an athlete, which I mean, you've mountain climber, uh, the ultra running, right? Other sports. Mm-hmm. Where do you find the time? <laughs> it just, it, it kind of goes through waves. I mean, we can get into it, but, uh, you know, it's sort of like periods of a person's life. And, you know, you go through those. I don't climb mountains every day. I don't train for ultras every day, but uh, there's periods where that is what I do. And I try and do what's called stacking. So I try to okay. combine, like if you're doing long distance running, that can also help you with climbs and help you okay. do other things. So very cool. Very organized. Good job. All right. Well, I want to get in and talk about that, how you got started, uh, some of the things you've accomplished. I want to learn more about the, uh, your, um, center for global initiatives. Great. Talk a little bit more about that, but before we get started, I've got 10 questions for you. These are questions that I ask every one of my guests questions made famous on the TV show inside the actor studio, where the host James Lipton asked these same 10 questions of his guests from Hollywood TV film and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're good enough for my guests, certainly. So Chris, if you're ready, 10 questions for you, sir. Fire away. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Um, dad. Okay. What is your least favorite word? Uh, retire. <laughs> uh, what turns you on? Uh, creating, being creative. What turns you off? Uh, stupidity, mine, mine and <laughs> mine and others. <laughs> um, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, you know, I've just actually gotten into these uh, real nerdy uh, theta wave uh, pieces mm. of, of music. So uh, theta, theta wave, theta wave stuff. Very cool. 
what sound or noise do you hate? <laughs> um, like um, lately, we've just been suffering a lot of wind. So it's like creaks and squeaks and things like that. It usually always means that something's about to break or something I need to fix. So it could yeah. be my car too. So squeaks and creaks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what is your favorite curse word? <laughs> well, there's there's so many. Um, <laughs> so many to probably, choose from. <laughs> probably something that relates to fiddle dee dee, I would okay. say. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, you know, um, probably like being a venture capitalist. Um, yeah, you know, it'd be cool to have that kind of funding to be able to do those sorts of things, but also yeah. just, uh, you know, to be, to be able to, um, I guess it gets back to creativity and building and stuff, but uh, being a VC would be uh, pretty heady, pretty fun, I think. Very cool. That's awesome. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Oh, gosh. Well, that's an easier, quick one. I used to bale hay. I lived on a farm for a while with my dad. And oh, my God, baling hay was like I had just horrible. I had and had horrible hay fever. And oh, the stories we could spend five episodes on how much I hate baling hay. So being a hay baler or baling hay, that would right. oh, that'd be the worst. <laughs> Very cool. All right. And final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> That should be St. Peter, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. God's uh, not open in the old Yeah, old <laughs> yeah, yeah. Saying, um, <laughs> Oh, uh, like what took you so long? What took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Oprah taking out her own trash or something. That just doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. She's got peeps. Yeah. All right. Of course, we're going to get back. We're going to talk about how you got started, uh, your your background and your experience in, in the field of psychology. Um, and your work for the Center Global Initiatives, among other things, right? So we've got a lot of stuff to cover, so we'll get right to it right after this. So listeners, stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Dr. Chris Tout. Chris, thanks again for agreeing to, to be with us. Where are you at these days? Uh, I am literally in Egg Harbor, Wisconsin. So on the peninsula, um, that's called Door County. So okay. uh, we're we're experiencing uh, some very nice, pretty uh, snow uh, in forty. So uh, actually, it's it's good enough to go for a run after this. So nice. That's, that's I have very planned. cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I grew up in Southern California. We didn't really get weather. <laughs> <You know? laughs> good for we you. To, they they say we had we had four seasons. There's fire, flood, earthquake, and drought. <laughs> okay. So, I hear you. Not big on the snow, but uh, yep. very cool. So uh, tell me about how you got started. I mean, at what point growing up did you decide you wanted to go into psychology? Was that something that um, like in the family? Do you have other other people in the no, family? Or? No, no, no. My, um, my paternal grandparents didn't even graduate high school. Um, no one in my family ever went to college till me. Um, but there's still a value in education um, and probably kind of... Uh, 
you know, embedded in that was um, an ethic for hard work and whatever that might be, like bailing hay. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I, I lived with my mom. My folks were divorced before I was one years old, and I uh, lived in urban Dallas for about the first 10, 12 years and then lived with my dad um, in very rural Indiana, another 10. And um, I just I kind of realized that, uh, you know, unlike uh, Green Acres, uh, I was not cut out for farm living. So um got into you know and again my folks were were supportive you know they they didn't particularly say go this way or that way but uh um i actually started off uh, as a math major as an undergraduate so um i had had a double major in math in high school and very much enjoyed that and back in the day um i was interested in computers but computers really uh, weren't quite what they were uh, back then uh, as they are today and um, there was even computer science. So that's how you start off to get into it was via math. And long story short, I kind of realized that I wasn't really cut out for coding and writing Fortran and COBOL and doing deck tins and punch cards. We didn't even have mm-hmm. monitors, you know, it's like just, oh, it's very, very <laughs> like the, the Neanderthal era of uh, computing. So um, took a psychology class, uh, really liked that um, simultaneously. Then that was in the school of science was where math was. Um, but uh, people said, you know, I also had like I, uh, an interest in science and interest in art. So they said, oh, you should, you know, get into architecture. So I transferred to the School of Engineering and Technology, which had a lot of nice overlaps with my uh, uh, courses and um, got into that, got actually an associate's degree in architecture and very much enjoyed that. But again, looking forward to the future is like I wasn't going to be putting a new line down on a piece of paper to draw anything novel or unique was all going to be renovations and rehabs in the 1970s and late or early 80s and uh, took the psychology class and loved it and took another psychology class and loved it and looked forward to the class and looked forward to studying it and bought extra books and stuff and long story short wound up going getting the um, associate's degree in architectural technology transferring back to the school of sciences where psychology was and wound up I think with like 52, 56 credits or something just in psychology. I took, I think just about every psychology class they had and the classic, you know, what do you do with an undergrad degree in psychology? You apply to graduate school. (laughs) So, so that's what I did. And, um, thought I would got into a clinical program, which was kind of tricky back in those days. It was easier to get into medical school than it was to clinical programs and psych. And there's like umpteen different flavors of psychology PhDs you can get. And um, liked that, uh, thought I would wind up being kind of like Bob Newhart and seeing, you know, neurotic adults in, uh, in an outpatient practice and wound up seeing uh, very uh, traumatized and troubled children uh, in an inpatient setting. So just really kind of um, did the quite the, the grand tour of uh, psychology. And that's kind of how it all started off very psychology centric. And then since then, it's always been everything I've done has always had the, the thread of psychology stitching it all together. But that's kind of the, the origin story of uh, how I got into psychology and fell in love with it. That's cool. I mean, there's everybody talks about the exploration of space, but there's so much <laughs> in the space between our ears that we don't know mm-hmm. about, you know. Yeah, there's so, a lot of space between my ears. Um, well, <laughs> a couple of us, mine too. Yeah, there's just there's just so much. The more you read, the more you study, the more you hear. It's oh, yeah. the more you realize you don't know. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's been a greater, with COVID and everything, there's been a greater awareness and appreciation of mental health kinds of issues when we take a look at it just from the, the mental health side of things. But certainly psychology, you know, psychology plays a role in design, psychology plays a role in, you know, just so many other kinds of aspects of our lives. But I think there's a greater appreciation and maybe from the clinical side, a little less stigma with, than uh, maybe what there used to be. Absolutely. Yeah. My background is organizational change management. And so working with organizations, they are, uh, there's a lot of psychology that goes in with the, the changes Absolutely. things that impact businesses. So yeah, very cool. But you've also, you held an academic appointment, Northwestern University, um, representative to the United Nations. I mean, you've been everywhere. That is awesome. Did that come <laughs> oh, from thanks. the books? Because like you said, the, the 38 books you've written, is yeah. that kind of where you got known? Yeah, they uh, they all again they all kind of conspire in a very nice positive kind of way. And again, just being kind of, you know, having this itch and always wanting to scratch it within psychology and learn a smidge more here and there. Uh, back with Northwestern, um, and, and again, maybe even back to science and math, um, a lot of the stuff I did was research. So, uh, you know, leaned in heavy to statistics and looking at data, those types of things. That then came back in the more recent years. I've written a lot about um, artificial intelligence and algorithms and big data and predictive analytics and precision medicine, you know, so it's all kind of come full circle that way. But yeah, back in the day, um, in the mid 80s, early 80s, there really wasn't a whole lot out there in terms of outcome studies, looking at what worked clinically in psychology and psychiatry. It's always kind of mysterious with even psychiatry about, you know, psychopharmacology and psychotropic medications and stuff. So um, early on, I got involved um, and did a book um, uh, that uh, was with uh, colleagues at Northwestern looking at treatment outcomes. And that got me working with Wiley. And then um, one of the things I learned in my graduate training was that no one ever really taught me much about how to run a practice or anything. So you'd appreciate this from the consultative IO, um, uh, like IO psychology side of things. Um, so I started uh, when I was teaching, I would teach in ethics classes and teach in professional development classes, how to develop a practice, how to review a contract, how to be an, uh, an appealing candidate for a position, et cetera, how to put together a group or a, a group practice, um, you know, how to evaluate your practice, et cetera. So um, Wiley liked that. I pitched some ideas to Wiley and did a couple of books with them, did a series with them on treatment planning back in the day. Um, so, you know, those, those things are all going along. And so like, it's sort of like a lot of people classes that you teach, you get so much content and you become in some little niche areas, kind of like a, I hate to say I'm a content expert because I don't feel like I ever really kind of met that, but knew enough to be able to stitch things together in a book. And then, um, you know, you get talks on it, you get good feedback from your audience, good feedback from students, and then kind of rinse and repeat and finally do some papers and then build that all into to books. And, and the, the activity at the United Nations also is with the tip of the hat uh, back to psychology, the um, American Psychological Association, one of the divisions of it, Division 9, had non-governmental organizational status with the United Nations. And I had done a book on policy development um, way back when, and that kind of led me into looking at policy and looking at international issues and uh, always had an interest in international kinds of affairs, which made sense now with global health. So um, that led to applying for and being able to uh, get in to, to do a year stint at uh, the United Nations as well. And that led to more talks and that led to a 
co-edited, co-authored book with a fellow named Harvey Langholz um, called The Psychology of Diplomacy. And so all these things, even though it might be one specific niche kind of thing saying, well, it's the United Nations, uh, you know, that leads to other people, mm -hmm. other networks, other opportunities. And if you like to write and you work with other people that like to write, then you can co-author things, co-edit things. And if you have a nice relationship with a good publisher, then you know, that gives you a little bit of, of motivation to, to push for something like that. I've, I've never written a book with a, like first without first having a contract. So, yeah. you know, that once you got a contract, then, then you got some obligations and that, you know, helps, helps you oh, get yeah. to the finish line. So as, <laughs> that's as motivation. You know, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. But 38 books, that is, that is awesome. And you've spoken to, I mean, all around the country, what a hundred different countries you've been in? Yeah, I've been to probably 102 or three countries. Wow. Um, I haven't spoken in all of those, but uh, yeah, a lot of that was international lectures. I think I've given talks and lectures and whatnots in about 20 different countries and all over the place in the States. Very cool. Are other countries dealing with a lot of the same things that we're dealing with from a psychological standpoint or... Yeah, and in some, yes, in general, and uh, oftentimes, you know, I feel like, um, you know, uh, depending upon the specific topic, you know, they, they know a lot more, can bring a lot uh, different perspective to what it is that we were doing. I mean, just to speak to <clears throat> circle back, maybe just uh, uh, presence of mind, but uh, I gave a talk um, about policy issues and I gave it um, in Egypt uh, years and years ago. And, uh, you know, it was very eye opening to me because it was one of the first times I kind of started to um, eke out uh, outside of um, uh, psychology kinds of talks and psychology conferences and things. It's very multidisciplinary in terms of uh, the audience, but it was also multicultural and it was probably one of the first international talks I'd ever given. And it was so eye-opening, you know, to me to have this, you know, parochial kind of perspective and also a, a greater respect, more so when I've done humanitarian mission work, but um, to not have this hubris of West knows best or, you know, that, you know, we we know everything and, and we come over and we'll, you know, teach everybody else how to do it. I mean, I I very much was um, humbled with uh, and, and had my eyes open to how much, you know, I could, you know, learn not just being the, the guy at the dais, but then also engaging in conversations and being able to hear other people's talks and then being able to have those little, you know, interstitial in between kinds of meetings and things. And that's, that's, I think, really opened my eyes to having much more of a, uh, an open, um, uh, non-specific, uh, you, know, uh, you know, my way or the highway kind of perspective that I, I feel like I always generally get more than, than I give when I do those kinds of talks. Yeah. And I wish everybody had the, the opportunity to travel and talk to other people. That's, we just, uh, two years ago, we did a safari in Africa oh, and speaking wow. to one of the guides, we're just out in the middle of the savannah having a cup of tea out there and, uh, <laughs> you know, talking to him about, uh, they were in a, uh, their, uh, oh, my mind just went blank. They were getting ready elections, oh, uh -huh. elections mm -hmm. at the time and mm -hmm. how their electrical pol uh, electric policies and everything like that. And the policies we have here and the things that we've gone through, how similar they are. Mm -hmm. And then how different their perspective on things was so much different, but it just, it, it was amazing after having those kind of discussions, you know, with somebody, it's like, wow, yeah. you know, we are all pretty similar, you know, yeah. the way we yeah. think and the things we want. Yeah. It's nice. That's neat to see. Awesome. Would love to, yeah. Love to do more. Okay. So tell me more about the center for global initiatives. Tell me about that. Sure. Um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, we have been around for, I think going on our 12th year. Um, 
And it's, you know, you would appreciate this again from uh, organizational uh, consulting. We started off, um, uh, I just get maybe even further back to the origin story. Um, we started off, uh, like I got involved with um, kind of, you know, I, I kind of revert to, refer to my career as being like Mr. Magoo, kind of going off in all these different directions and hopefully things turn out okay. And I had done some uh, international mission work working with other organizations and really enjoyed that. And again, felt like I got more than I gave and um, got involved in doing those kinds of things. And on a climb that I had done back in 92 and in, in uh, Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, met a fellow who was a porter, and he was working his way through seminary, making money as a porter. And long story short, we just hit off this relationship that we have to this day. And we wanted to, me and my friends and other people I told about his work, um, he finished, he went through seminary, and then uh, became a uh, chaplain at um, uh, two hospitals, uh, got involved with nurses training and a variety of other kind of build outs there, got involved with uh, orphans, AIDS orphans, and uh, was developing programs for them. And then um, again, I'll skip because it's a, it's 12 years worth of stories, but um, he developed a, a kindergarten that we helped support and put that together, got approval from the Tanzanian Ministry of Education. And that's been kind of like our, our big sweet spot. So we tried to, um, as, a, as a nonprofit, do different kinds of projects in different areas. So we have um, one in uh, Cambodia, well, we started in Cambodia, Benin, Bolivia, India, uh, and then Tanzania. And we got to it and everything was going along just fine. And we got to a point where someone came to us. And I should also say too, back to the hubris issue, um, we never picked a spot. People always kind of came to us. They knew what we were doing or we had friends and networks and stuff and said, hey, could you help us out here in Benin? Could you help us out here with this project or whatever? And if we could, we tried to. And if we couldn't, we tried to connect them with someone else that maybe had better skills and contacts and what we had. So we got to this point where um, a, a married couple who were both surgeons from Ukraine came to us and they were applying for a grant with USAID to work in something called internats in um, uh, Ukraine, in Kiev. And um, we uh, uh, just, we looked at the project and it was going to be a three-year commitment for our part of it. It was going to be baseline assessments, uh, looking at what's called, like, there's a thing called ward atmosphere scales, which is a psychological tool to look at atmospheres, different kinds of places. Could be a business, could be a ward on a hospital, could be a neonatal unit, it could be, you know, whatever. And so that's pretty much going to be in my sweet spot in terms of expertise. So we looked at it. And it would require having to be in, in Kiev, probably anywhere from a week to 10 days, three, uh, four times a year, once every quarter for three years. And, you know, we all have day jobs. Our, our nonprofit, no one gets paid. I don't get paid a cent. You know, we, we all donate our time as volunteers and, and every donated dollar goes into the work, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm going to go home and tell my family, I guess what, you know, for the next three years, we're, I'm not going on spring break with you or, you know, it just, it, it wasn't sustainable and no one else, you know, uh, was able to do that as well as any of our volunteers. So um, for the grant, the grant actually didn't wind up getting funding that it, it just, you know, just USAID grants are very difficult to get, but it kind of became this wake up call for us. And so I gathered our board together and I said, you know, I, just, I felt like I just, you know, honestly, Harlan felt like I, you know, tripped over my own feet kind of right out of the gate. You know, here we go. We got all these things. We were, you know, all it's heady. It's exciting. Things are going well. And then we get to our like fifth, sixth project. And it's like, you know, we're, we're out of, you know, out of, out of juice, out of fuel. So, um, 
we decided to pivot as many companies and startups and others do in the for-profit as well as I guess non-for-profit. And my board kind of, you know, calmed me down and patted me on the head and said, you know, we've put together a lot of tools and a lot of things. Um, we've learned a lot in this process and um, we can make that part of what it is that we do. So now what we do, we continue with our, our first our first partner, uh, Royce, Reverend uh, Father Alois Ruru in uh, Tanzania with working with the two hospitals and working with the, the orphanage, et cetera, in the kindergarten. And um, now we also help others build out their own projects. So um, this year, 20, well, 2021, we revamped our website hugely. Um, we have a number, everything on there is free. There's no paywalls to anything. Um, there are uh, tools, there's free downloadable books, there's webinars, there's lectures, there's podcasts, there's links to other tools. There's, I just put up literally yesterday, a wonderful resource of a library um, of different international resources for people doing research or doing different kinds of studies. So, um, and our goal now is to what we call open sourcing humanitarian intervention. And we developed a fellowship program. So we have uh, two different tracks with that. So if someone wants to, we've kind, of, I, we've kind of learned, I've kind of learned that people are kind of bifurcated oftentimes when they come to us. Some people say, hey, I want to start my own 501c3, but I have no idea how to do it. I have no idea where to start. I have no idea you know, how does all this stuff work? What's the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit, a 501c3 and an LLC and a this or a that? Um, and other people, and so they want to do that. And so we help, help them do that. Other people say, I don't want to start a 501c3. I got enough jobs. I got enough stuff to do. I don't want to build a board. I don't want to submit stuff to the IRS. I don't want to do a separate set of taxes. I don't want to hire an accountant. I don't want to build a website. I don't want a board of directors. I just want to help these people uh, dig a well. I just want to help these people build a bridge. I just want to help these people get their products to market. So for those folks, it's sort of like, just let's see if we can help them, you know, do that. So we might have context to do that. We might have tools to do that. We could act as a fiscal intermediary and not take a nickel from them. But, you know, people want to make donations. They can donate to us. Then we give all those dollars to them. But whoever does the donation gets a tax deduction because we're the nonprofit rather than Joe's Road in Timbuktu, that type of thing. So, and that's what we've been doing ever since and helping with, with help with you today to kind of help help spread the word and, and get that out there for people that are interested in doing that. That is cool. Do you have people reaching out saying, Hey, I have this great idea, but I, I don't know what, how to get started with it. Absolutely. Yeah. All the time, a lot of time. And it's kind of neat. I mean, it's some folks that are kind of um, maybe, you know, X career kinds of things, you know, fourth career, fifth career, mm -hmm. or they're uh, retired or they have some time or they have some interest or some passion. And now's the time maybe COVID kind of opened their eyes to, to pursuing that and they're, they're maybe the older ages. And I have a number of people um, that reach out, you know, that are like um, undergrads and saying, you know, hey, I want to go to graduate school and get into the nonprofit area. What should I do? And I have graduates that say, hey, I just graduated, you know, in whatever political science or women's issues or something like that. And now I want to go start a, um, a nonprofit, you know, can, you know, can you help me out and do that? So it's really kind of exciting to kind of uh, see the variations in that to say, it's not just, a, to me, it's nice that it's so broad spectrum in terms of areas as well as uh, age groups and, and places in life that it's never too late and it's never too soon. Very cool. But now uh, you hear so many, you know, 501c3s and, and charities, looking outside of the U.S. 
why is that? Is it the the tax laws here that get in interfere? Is it the the federal, you know, laws um, or something? You mean like in the sense of starting one outside of the United uh, States, or or helping? You know, oh, oh, we're going to a foreign country to dig a well. There's a lot of yeah. places here that could use help, but it seems mm-hmm. like there's restrictions, more restrictions yeah. here. That's a great question. A um, couple of different ways to, to answer it. Um, in, a, in a strict, this the, thank you, tip of the hat to our volunteer attorneys who have taught me this. Um, this the designation 501c3 is strictly a United States Treasury IRS designation. There is no such thing as a 501c3 anywhere outside of the United States because okay. the Department of the Treasury doesn't exist outside of the United States. So right. other countries have their own flavors of it. So that's why you might hear the term NGO, like non-governmental organization. <clears throat> a charity is an NGO because it's not part of the government. And it's just kind of a nice, a, a broad spectrum word to be able to use. You know, you could have an NGO that's based out of Cambodia or an NGO that's based out of Atlanta. So whatever. Um, the um, the work aspect, I, I, when we first started, I got that question all the time, Harlan, like, you know, Hey, Chris, there's, isn't there enough going on in your own backyard, you know, to have to deal with it. And it was sort of like, well, yeah. And I do that too. (laughs) You know, it's not like I'm exclusive and I donate, you know, to the, you know, to the, to the, from the YMCA to our church, you know, and everything else in between it, little, you know, bits and pieces. If I had more, I'd give more. But, you know, try to do my tithing and be appropriate with those kinds of things. But then the issue was, um, you know, if a friend emails me and says, hey, I'm supporting the um, hospital auxiliary, you know, can you donate, you know, 25 bucks to this or that? I do. And when I had a friend, Alois Uru from Africa, say, hey, I'm trying to put together a kindergarten for these orphans. Can you help out? I said, yeah, I sure can so it was sort of like one of those things where um, if, if someone asks me to help out with something, then, you know, I try to do that. But because I've had so much ex- more experience in the areas of global health and working in, in you know, in medical schools and things like that, that have more international based programs, I can tell you that not that there's a, a competition for uh, there is a competition for resources, but not that there's a competition of you know, my NGO is better than yours or, or the needs that I meet or, you know, can beat up the needs that you meet or something like that. It's it's more so this is an area that I have that kind of expertise in and I felt that there was a need and someone asked me. Um, and there's other areas that I feel like, um, you know, in the United States, there, there are still, you know, poverty areas, violent areas, food oases, a variety of those kinds of, of problems and, and issues. But you know, kind of pound for pound, there's probably more availability Mm -hmm. through governmental and non-governmental ways in the United States, at least than the areas that, that I tend to focus or that are, that I know of, and that our center tends to try and help out with. Yeah, very true. So uh, what big initiatives you have going on right now through the center? Well, kind of our biggest one right now is um, uh, this this fellowship and certificate program. Um, It's kind of gets back to the old Johnny Appleseed, you know, we're trying to teach a person to fish rather than do it all ourselves. And and while we still can consult and things like that, um, you know, it's really kind of... uh, 
you know, helping launch those kinds of things. Um, we continue like, and again, just literally as recent as less than 24 hours ago, it's interesting timing. You know, we continue to build out the resources and tools that we have on our website. So um, leaning in heavy to our work in Tanzania, uh, we're very proud. I think it was one of our volunteers who was just amazing. I think it was 2019, she got an ambulance. Uh, I have no idea how she was able to do that, but she got an ambulance um, donated to one of the hospitals in Tanzania. Uh, we were able to do one of our biggest um, donations this year uh, through our consulting. Um, the work, like when people, like the courses, all the coursework, I should say this, like all the coursework that we have for our um, uh, fellowship and certificate programs are available for free, public domain. They're out there. We have links to it. You know, just come to our site as a hub and go out and find it or find them. You know, you can certainly find these yourselves too. There's nothing, again, proprietary or paywalled. But we try to just make it easier, you know, the whole idea that it shouldn't be so hard to make a difference in the world and to be able to help others. So, you know, that's kind of what we've um, had our focus on to be able to hopefully, um, you know, uh, teach a person to fish and and be a little Johnny Appleseed about it. And then um, we also... Um, so I've, I've done some consulting for that. If people pay tuition and they get our supervision, then all of those funds go to supporting our projects. And again, this year it's been, we knock on wood, it's been very <clears throat> successful that we've been able to make our largest um, funding donation to our friends in Tanzania. So that's something we've been very proud of. And we just, for the first time also this year, um, I'm a LinkedIn influencer and we did a big write-up of kind of a, a summarization so we could have a little bit more public visibility and hopefully people supporting us or even you know, supporting is great, but also the idea is to get the word out. And if people need our help that, uh, you know, here we are, here's what we do. If it's a fit for you, you know, then, you know, reach out to us and we'll see what we can do to be able to, to be of help. So <clears throat> hopefully a year from now, you know, we'll have a, a, uh, you know, a new update with some of the other fresher things, but it's always, you know, kind of, you know, cultivating and grooming and growing and adding. And, and for our podcast, you know, there's always a thread of humanitarian intervention, you know, with whoever it is we have as a guest and publicizing their work, getting their work uh, understood and appreciated and, and you know, helping, uh, you know, high, high tides raise all ships. So Absolutely. helping any, any which way we can. Good job. Yeah. And tell me about your podcast, Living a Life in Full. Yeah, we're going into, uh, I don't know when your and my show will air, but we're going into our fifth season. So we're very wow. excited about that. Cool. Um, we drop uh, once a month um, on the first day of every month. So it could be um, any day of the week. Uh, and it's it's gone really well. We've we've really grown, I'm proud to say, and, and freaked out by it. It's so weird <laughs> and cool. I'm, I'm going to jinx it or something. But uh, we got listed as one of the, of one of the uh, top 5% uh, podcasts by Listen Notes. Um, we have a combined social reach of over 3 million. So wow. we're very happy about that. Um, and lately, I mean, I've always been in awe of the guests that we have and the people that, um, you know, a lot of them started off in our first few years for people that I knew and <clears throat> it felt very, you know, clubhouse-ish, so to mm -hmm. speak in that way. Um, and now I think, you know, just some of the most recent uh, people, I, I feel like now I could call them friends. Um, and even like, you know, as well, we, you know, you Harlan, but yeah. it having that kind of visibility and having the ability, you know, like people will now that have, that have been originally strangers to me that have authored, you know, like a great book or done, you know, some very interesting kind of project that have uh, made their way to our show, um, you know, will reach out to me and, and say, Hey, you know, would you, 
be interested in, you know, meeting so-and-so, you know, I think they'd be, a, you know, they've got a new book coming out or, you know, here's, you know, John Gertner, for example, was introduced to me by uh, William Green. And now they're two, I, I'm super fan of them and, and they, you know, keep, you know, connecting off with me and telling me little tidbits like I would do any other kind of friend. It's like, oh, nice. like, you know, it's like, you really like me. <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, the, and those are very motivating kinds of things. I mean, you feel like there's nothing worse than like being in an echo chamber or feeling like it's a message in a box and wondering if, you know, am I getting any, you know, traction? Am I just, you know, feeding an ego need or something versus actually providing some benefit? And those kinds of things are little bits and pieces of evidence that that make me feel like, you know, perhaps we're on the right track. And Absolutely. it's it's nice to, to help give voice to others. Absolutely. Fifth season. That's pretty good. Yeah. I've just, uh, you were actually podcast episode number 115. So I'm, whoa, congratulations, man. Wow. That's good. Woo. It started Woo. in January. So I've been doing, I've been doing two or three. Yeah. A week, so I remember I, when you and hey. I were first talking, but it was sort of like, oh my gosh, your, your cadence is impressive. Yeah. My friend, I, well, oh my you're gosh. out climbing oh. mountains and yeah, saving the world. And <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here doing podcasts. <laughs> oh man. Wow. Tip my hat. Oh, no worries. Um, so courage, where did you find the courage to, to step out and do this? You could have, like I said, easily found a job, maybe had a little, little practice in some small town or something like that, helping people. And yet you've gone above and beyond. Where did that come from? Oh my gosh. Um, that is really a great and, and deep question. Um, I don't know. It, it, it didn't necessarily feel, um, Gosh, I don't know how to say this without like saying something like so highfalutin, but um, it wasn't didn't necessarily feel like an, an option, so to speak. Um, I did have a mentor early in my career who said, "You know what? All the stuff that you do is always behind the scenes," and I, I think he was making reference to like you know developing programs. And I was you know kind of just getting started in doing research and stuff like that. I wasn't getting talks or very 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 early in my career. He said, you need to go out there and, you know, you need to like get out in front of people and get out and talk and stuff. And so in some way, I guess, psychologically, it gave me permission, but in another way, it was like, he was my boss and telling me to do it, you know, so I better darn well go do it, you know? So, and he said, you know, he said, like, and he had all these other things too. He said, oh, you got to grow a beard. You look too young and people aren't going to take you seriously. And you got to dress like this and do like that, you know? So sort of like, okay, okay, okay. So I mean, part of it was kind of, you know, that push, but I guess, you know, kind of psychologically that even, you know, people can get pushed and then they just can push back and react against it and not do it and go further down a hole or something. But I guess there was part of me that felt like, okay, I'll take this risk. And if, you know, you, you, you do fall on your face, you know, you don't, you know, come, come at bat every time and hit a home sure. run or anything. So, um, you know, you start to weather those um, failures, if you will, and, and those setbacks and see that that's all part of it. Um, but then also to feel like if you, for me, you know, it's, you know, psychology is a help, clinical psychology is a, a helping profession. So, um, being able to help others. And if that help is through, you know, being in psychotherapy with someone and, and working, um, you know, with a family and working with kids, or if it's uh, helping someone to learn something by giving a lecture in a course or in a talk in a, in a presentation, or by putting it down and studying something and help add to knowledge in a paper or compile all that into a book. Uh, you know, those are, those are all things that, um, you know, I don't know if I would call them courageous, but they're all things that do take a bit of gumption 
to be able to, to get yourself out there. And, and God, I mean, you know, like going through the peer review process for a, mm. an article or just freaking going through your dissertation, you know, and all the, you know, all the, like, oh, I'm an idiot, you know, an imposter syndrome, you know, kinds of things. But, you know, I'd really encourage people that listen that may you know, be feeling that way at, at whatever point in their career or whatever point in their, their journey, um, you know, push, do push through those things. Do expect that not everything is, is going to go, you know, roses and, and butterflies, but, uh, you know, if you feel if, if, if that's courage to be able to go through those kinds of things in a, in a, you know, uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, stoic kind of way and kind of pushes to, to what your, your ethos is as a person, then, you know, that can wind up, you know, 35 years later having a conversation like this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so many people, they, they have the ideas, they have the, the desire and yet it's that fear that kind of gets in the way, you know, mm-hmm. but speaking, public speaking, that sure. ranks way above fear of death and spiders and snakes and everything like right, that, you right. know, just to yeah. get out and, and do that is, is something that people say, wow, I don't know if I ever could, you know, how mm-hmm. courageous that is. It may not look or feel like courage to you, but to somebody else looking from the outside, it definitely is. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and there's ways around that. I mean, practice, um, there, you know, there's Toastmasters. I mean, there's yes. a variety of different kinds of ways of doing that, you know, just given a, taking a speech class as an undergrad was terrifying, you know, and then I think part of it is to feeling a certain level of confidence for what your material is. You know, I could never go like publicly do a debate or anything like that. You know, like you wouldn't high school or college being on the debate team. Cause it's sort of like, man, I need to know cold with every single detail, you know, to, with a microscope, you know, before I go out and say anything publicly. So I, I, you know, I feel like that, you know, that gives great, great help and, and confidence in being able to, to talk about things. So, you know, start off with what you know and, and share that. And then, you know, once you get the, that, that through, then, you know, maybe take on more hostile audiences you know, and, <laughs> and see how you do, <laughs> so. yeah. but know your topic. That's huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Have yeah. to know your topic. Um, very cool. So if I was to bump into any of the folks that you've worked with or, or co-authored books with or anything like that and ask them what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? Um, I would hope um, they would say it's sort of like a, a steward leader or a servant leader. Um, when I've ever been in positions where um, I've been a director or a C-suite person, um, there, there's always sort of like a level, certain level of, of terror <laughs> that goes along with that because of the, the level of responsibility. But, um, you know, I think it's the, you know, I feel like for, for leaders and the courage around that is to... Um, have, you know, support those underneath you. I mean, it's sort of like, a, you know, um, I, I, you know, Stephen Covey was really a, um, uh, someone that influenced my thinking, you know, back in the day around that, the seven habits and, and all, and, you know, trying to understand other people uh, is in the very natural fit with uh, psychology and with, you know, clinical work, seek first to understand is what Covey said, and yeah. empathy is what psychology says. So <clears throat> I think I try to bring those into the work um, that I had with building things back when, 
when I was CEO of a startup and, and those types of things. And, and probably, you know, to my weakness, um, you know, I, I like to be involved in things, but, you know, there can be also a, there's a shadow to everything. There's a, oftentimes, oftentimes another side or, or a variety of facets and sides to things. And, and part of my weaknesses around that was maybe, um, you know, not being firm enough around certain kinds of things. And, and maybe, you know, always being a steward leader, I think can have a slippery slope of, you know, doing too much and slipping into micromanaging. And, and I tend to be a tad bit, this will be a big surprise to you and to listeners probably at this point, but a little OCD around things. You know, I'm, I'm very detail oriented. I really like to, you know, know what's going on, manage what's going on, control, you know, as best as I can have a, you know, good outcomes and those types of things. And, and that's hard when you're, you know, trying to lead other people. Um, it's hard when you're trying to manage other people. So, uh, but I would hope, you know, that it's steward leadership and, and having empathy and, and understanding for those that I work with, never being a dictator, never being a, you know, thou shalt kind of person. Yeah. That never works out well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not for me, especially. Um, so is COVID, I mean, it's, it's affected everybody. It's, it's impacted everybody. A lot of businesses are struggling now. Do we make our employees come back to work? Do we enforce this or that? There's so many different things that are going on. What kind of like, I don't know, encouragement or, or, or words of wisdom could you give to businesses on how to deal with their employees in a virtual environment? Yeah, it's that's great question and, and hard answer. Um, there's so much variance depending on what that kind of work is. Um, I have um, like a daughter um, who right now is kind of you know working in remotely, um, and there's been talk. It was supposed to be um, you know in the fall of 2021 that they were supposed to go back full time in in office, and Delta came about, and you know that that uh, you know squelched all that. I guess again, depending upon, I think people have learned very quickly that there are certain kinds of things that um, that lend themselves nicely to remote, remote work. Um, some people have been very adaptive to being able to work remotely. Um, you know, it's not like it's necessarily a new thing. I think we've got more social acceptance of it and, and leadership acceptance of it. I remember, um, Oh gosh, I can't think of her name, but uh, the woman that took over uh, Yahoo, you know, she had everybody come back very controversially years and years and years ago, uh, you know, to not be remote workers. And there was such, you know, pushback on that. And she felt like, you know, I, I believe that she couldn't, you know, maintain the kind of control and oversight that she felt was important with, you know, taking over a company the size of Yahoo back in the day. But I think now we've learned that <clears throat> certain kinds of things do lend themselves nicely to remote um, I'm working very deeply with a, a startup that, um, well, it's not a startup anymore. They've been around a decade. I keep, I shouldn't need to quit <laughs> calling them a startup, but um, that they learned that they did not have to be remote and one of the, or did not have to be face-to-face. -face. And in the process of becoming remote, learned that it might became their benefits. It became much more easy to recruit people that you didn't have to say, Hey, we love, you know, we'd love to have you come work with us. You're in San Francisco. We're in California. You got to move and you got to move your wife and you got to move your kids and you got to move, you know, this and that and move yeah. away from your friends and family. And now they can, you know, write code just as well sitting in San Francisco as they could in, in California. Else, so yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it, it it becomes incumbent upon the leader and, and the boss again to paint upon your your company. You can't say that with you know making hamburgers about that, but um, you know to paint upon the kind of work that you have. Take a look at where you might lean into the advantages that that are there. Take a look at what you've been able to have happen, and then maybe again, this is psychologist to me, try to keep a thumb on the pulse of the esprit de corps that you might lose otherwise without having a the proverbial water cooler to be able to yeah. talk about things, but also realize that that sitting at home in your pajamas in front of Zoom all day has its stresses that can start to take sure. their toll. Absolutely. Yeah. When we're consulting, working on site with the different clients, we could walk up the row, see somebody at their office, knock on the door and go in. We call it a drive-by basically. Yeah. You go yeah. in and chit chat, how you doing, yeah. what's going on. It's mm-hmm. hard to do that now with everybody remote. You know? Yeah. Who was it? Someone had the phrase uh, management by walking around, Yeah, you know, and you kind of just, you can't do that. I mean, again, another entity that I work with, uh, they have happy hours periodically on a Friday and it's all on Zoom. And I'm like, my, I, I've never experienced one yet because I've had a conflict with my schedule, but it's sort of like, well, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it me and one person, me and a bunch of people trying to talk over one, you know, so, and yeah. I know some, I know it exists and other people have worked it out. I have yet to experience it, but you know, I think people are trying to come up with those kinds of solutions to be able to have that camaraderie and, and that kind of, you know, connectivity that, that you don't have with the, you know, being together in the management by walking around part of it. Yeah. Cause we're used to hopping on a zoom meeting and getting down to business, getting work done, hanging up. Now it's almost like the meeting where you come in, how was your weekend? What are the kids doing? How's that new puppy? Well, you have mm-hmm. to get that part in to kind of bring everybody together as a team mm-hmm. and then get the work done. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we'll see variations on that theme as, as we, as whatever, you know, comes our way next, um, you know, with vis-a-vis, you know, pandemics and, and not being, you know, at work as usual and, and to see what the, the new normal, the new new is going to be like for us. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, again, take advantage of some of the benefits and try and clip and, and adapt to ways that can be uh, beneficial for the company as well as the people working at the company. Definitely. Yeah. Pivot is the big word, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So mountaineering, you've climbed three (laughs) of the major peaks in the world, right? Kilimanjaro, where else? Um, I've climbed three of the seven summits. They've been the baby ones. So I, okay. I would not try and uh, overreach with that. But um, the, you know, so the seven continents. So the uh, Kilimanjaro is the tallest in the African continent. Uh, Elbrus is the tallest in the European continent. Um, and it's technically in Russia, in the Caucasus near Georgia. Okay. And um, very easy is um, uh, Kosciuszko in Australia. So, and it's basically it's a hike. It's, it's, you could probably do it, you know, sometimes a year in your tennis shoes and shorts practically, but uh, yeah. So those, those were kind of the, the easy ones, so to speak. Um, and then again, I always tried to kind of pair those up with other kinds of, like I was given a, a, back to your thing, how do you get so much done? Well, I got invited to give a talk and the talk was in New Zealand. And it was like, well, if I'm already in New Zealand, I'm that much closer to Australia and I like to climb and it doesn't take a whole lot of technical prep or equipment to be able to do that. So I'm not like schlepping over, you know, crampons and ice axes or anything. So, so that was easy enough to do that. And I had gotten maybe, I don't know, two, three years prior to that, uh, scuba certified. So I got the opportunity to dive the great barrier reef while I was there as well too. Cause again, once I'm in Australia, then Mm -hmm. what's the likelihood of me being able to come back? So it's just, 
you know, back to the secret sauce of, of trying to do these different kinds of things is just being opportunistic. If there are certain kinds of things that, you know, are an itch you want to scratch and you have the opportunity, you're already that close to a place or already maybe, you know, a certain level of fitness or this or that or the other that, uh, you know, just to try and, you know, take advantage of that, to, um, get a couple of birds with one stone or trip as it were. Nice. That's what I'm trying to tell my, my clients all the time. If you have a plan and you're prepared, those opportunities present themselves. You can take advantage of them. That's right. Absolutely true. Yeah. Good job. So what's next for you? You've got so much you've accomplished already. What's what's next? (laughs) Oh gosh. You know, um, it's, there's certain little fun things that have had to kind of go on hold because of not being able to travel. Um, we did a major move uh, with COVID and with being empty nesters, my wife and I. So um, that was kind of good timing because we couldn't kind of go anywhere else. <laughs> so, so we spent basically 2020 kind of selling one house and moving into a second home and and um, you know kind of updating and doing all the kind of work and things like that that uh, the second place needed because it was just a vacation home. So you didn't need to do certain kinds of things that if you yeah. lived there full time, you needed to do. Um, so I think, you know, honestly, I have started, I, I have this thing that I call the list. That's um, kind of like a, it's a checklist of stuff I want to do, but it's also, um, I keep track of all the stuff that I did do again, being a little, you know, on the obsessive side and liking to have details and things like that and keep track of all this stuff. So um, there's, um, there, there's a few trips I want to take um, just for fun. Um, and I probably also will, uh, Probably there's a, a couple of things I've been working on writing wise. I have a chapter that I'm co-authoring, uh, finishing up on a new book that I hope will be coming out in 2020. I can't be less. It can't be longer than 2022. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. I suspect that that will probably lend itself to doing some more professional uh, talks and things like that. Um, be continuing to build and add to uh, CGI and collaborating and working with others and supervising some of the the fellows and uh, people in the certificate program continuing to write um, for LinkedIn and continuing to, um, you know, build out the podcast and, you know, kind of rinse and repeating those kinds of things. But I think, um, I hope, again, um, pandemic uh, willing uh, to be able to get a little bit more uh, travel in and, and do some of those fun kinds of things, as well as maybe some physical challenges that are going to be. I'd like to uh, do the the Camino uh, del Santiago. Um, I don't know if you know that yeah. one, but uh, yeah. So I would like to do that, um, you know, which takes some time. And now that I've kind of got a little flexibility in my time, there's things like that, that uh, I'd looked at actually even Aconcagua, but in my, in my initial research of it, it was sort of like, oh, it took, it takes like 18 days just to acclimatize. And wow. I thought, you know, okay, I kind of have that time now, but it's like, I, I hate to sound like such a nerd, but it's sort of like, you know, I can't, and I know, you know, there's Wi-Fi everywhere and all this, but it's just like, I don't know that I could take 18 days off of not writing, you know, I mean, they're just sort of like, and, and again, I'd still be away from my family and stuff too. So, so I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of in a, in a gray zone right now of certain kinds of things I didn't even think about uh, as possibilities. Now, maybe you're going to be possibilities in 2022 or 2023. So how about you? What's, what's, what's on your docket, man? We definitely want to get back to traveling. It's been a while. Um, We want to see the Northern lights. So we're thinking of going to either Iceland or, Somewhere up in that area, beautiful, um, good. The Machu Picchu and the the Mayan ruins. We want to go down there, and then Australia, New Zealand, is on wonderful. The list, so. Good. Well, you'll have to do one of the seven summits while you're there. So just 
get Start the prepping. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you. It won't take a whole lot. <laughs> so Start good for prepping. you. Oh, you'll enjoy those. Are all enjoy all those. That that'll be a wonderful trips, man. Definitely, very cool. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you being on the on the show. If people want to learn more about the Center for Global Initiatives, how can they do that? What is the website there? Uh, it is Center for Global Initiatives. It's a bit of a string, but it's that simple, simple, <laughs> easy for me to say, centerforglobalinitiatives.org. Um, and then uh, just, you know, ping me on LinkedIn. Um, we're on all the socials. Our podcast, again, is Living a Life in Full. We're on about 30 different platforms there, as well as YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, we do have a website. It's called alifeinfull.org. Um, all of our um, episodes are on there with show notes. So um, if you just just Google uh, Chris Stout, uh, Life in Full, something like that, it'll probably pop up with uh, everything for the um, the center, our fellowship, you know, anything like that. And again, uh, please do, you know, happy to have people reach out and follow on LinkedIn and keep up to date. We uh, I tend to produce a lot of content on that and uh, real happy to connect up with people any of those ways. Very cool. Good job. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you very much for taking time out to talk with us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's been great, Harlan. I really appreciate it and appreciate your work too. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, listeners, hope you guys were taking notes. Uh, A lot of good information here and definitely check out the Center for Global Initiatives and get involved, right? Doesn't take much, just get involved. Get, Get out there. All right. And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now. 